Okay, good morning. So we, we are talking clustering, finding groups and data, and we had your home exercises, so you you went through the hierarchical clustering, where the task is to find the closest pairs and start aggregating them into larger and larger clusters. And the other was uh, K, dividing the space in K uh, groups, and that was done by just starting from uh, from K points and saying everything that is closest to that point belongs to that cluster, to a particular cluster. And uh, speed-wise, finding all pairwise distances is n squared, quadratic time problem, while comparing every point's distance to one of the k uh, centers is n times k. k is usually small. You can have million customers, and you want to cluster them into 10 groups or 100 groups, right? Million times 100 is much smaller than million times million. And then you repeat, of course, number of cycles that you need to do the k-means. So k-means is uh, uh, highly scalable as compared to hierarchical uh, clustering. And then, of course, you can, uh, thinking how the, uh, how the data uh, clustering works, then you can, uh, then you will uh, see that uh, these clustering algorithms are not necessarily perfect in uh, finding the, the right clusters. You can imagine uh, different types of data that can break one or the other type of clustering. Anyway, um, Let's talk about uh, other ideas and ways how to combine different algorithms. First, k-means was efficient because for one point you calculate the distance to every other and you say all of these belong to that cluster. Okay. How do you find the new cluster center is by taking center of gravity and putting the new cluster center in there. Calculating center of gravity is fast because for every coordinate or attribute you will calculate the mean value and the means of individual coordinates will be the center of gravity. However, this is uh, problematic when you have um, values for which you can't take an average. What is the average of a car and a bus? So you can have categorical data for which you cannot take averages. So in that case, uh, a small variant of k-means is k-medoid, which uh, has a mean and median. Median is one of the existing data points. Mean is something that can be non-existing in the data, just average. Median is one of the existing data points. So then the task becomes, once you have the cluster identified number of points, the task is to find the most central point. One of the existing points, that is as central as possible. So then we only deal with original data points as cluster centers. It can be more tricky when you have a thousand data points, trying to figure out which one is the most central, from which the distances to all the others are minimized, because you may need to sort of like test many of them. Right? Um, so, k, k medoids uh, poorly implemented can be uh, 
uh, slower. But, uh, but it is a small variant of KDs and allows to be with a categorical bias because you can achieve the values like pink or red or yellow, uh, just one of the existing data points. Don't need to take an average of yellow and pink. Uh, so K-means and K-metoids uh, both create these sort of convex shaped clusters. So these are uh, central points and the what is around this is Voronoi diagram. Uh, between every the two uh, cluster centers, there is a line. On one side, it would belong to one, and on the other side, it would belong to the other. So these are all convex uh, polygons, every cluster. Also in the higher dimensional space. We look at this in the small dimensional space, two dimensional, but it can be in the higher dimensional space. Uh, in here, you can also see that after the cluster or before the cluster, there are some positive and negative uh, values. You can imagine actually combining the supervised and non-supervised learning. Uh, clustering is non-supervised, we don't know the classes, but once you have the clustering results, uh, you can allocate uh, perhaps the classes if you know some representatives from the clusters, uh, what class they have. I will, I will skip over this. We have touched and uh, basically touched everything, and and uh, you simulated everything. So, K metoids picks one of one of the existing points and does not try to invent new points in the data space. Then, the the, the other variant of K means is. Uh, more probabilistic, we in the K-means we said that uh, there is a cluster center, and we ask for a point how far it is from the cluster center. If that is the closest cluster center, then it belongs to that. But if you are on the border somewhere to some other cluster center. It's not necessary that you, you would always belong to this one. You might also cross over to the other one. So if you think of the data as being generated by some random function, then you hope that cluster center somehow defines these functions, and you generate data around that cluster center. And then you ask, what is the probability that my point was generated from this cluster or from that cluster? So you can, instead of the distances, you can convert this into ask, asking, what are the probabilities that my point was given bias from this cluster or from that cluster? And uh, that means that for one point you have one probability to belong to one cluster and the other probability to belong to the other one. It could be 50-50, it could be 60-40, it could be uh, 20, 30, uh, 30, 10, 5, 5%. So, expectation maximization uh, says that point could potentially belong to many clusters and tries to estimate the probabilities. What is the probability that it belongs to this or that or that cluster? And then, 
the new cluster centers are made reversely, again, like using the, the condition probabilities, and say that, okay, given all these probabilities, the points, uh, where would be the potential cluster centers belong? Yeah. Uh, so updating the, uh, in the same way as k-means, uh, finding where the, where the points would belong, and then calculating new cluster centers uh, probabilistically. And this step-by-step uh, -step optimization uh, through expectation maximization, uh, which is, again, some clustering where the cluster boundaries do not need to be sharp. There are a number of uh, packages, of course, in the, in the R, in, in the Python, uh, which you can plug into your programs. There are a number of tools that you can uh, download and work uh, Standalone, like MEV, multi experiment viewer, uh, designed for gene and pressure data. Um, you can, it's a Java tool you can download, upload your data, do visualizations, k means, hierarchy, plus many different data sets, uh, data types. So you can use them uh, as a standalone tool. Or our group has produced, Donald Metzel wrote the web page. Uh, clustering visualization tool that does clustering and uh, principal component analysis, which we will discuss briefly. And also, this one is our group uh, clustering tool. So, basically, we are dealing with uh, gene expression data where we have large uh, numeric data matrices about gene activities and trying to find which genes uh, work together and which not. Now, this is your hierarchy, the clustering tree view, right? And the heat map, and the colors are not so well uh, separated in here. But what is behind it here is that we can combine the two clusters. I said originally that hierarchy uh, clustering is slow, k means is fast. When you have large data sets, and in this case it can be 50,000 uh, measurement, 50,000 different identities of genes, trying to cluster 50,000 um, objects, fast, online, web applications, then we can't wait. Uh, what, we, what we can do is we can use the fast algorithm to find a large number of small clusters. K means into 100 clusters, each one having uh, tens or hundreds of objects. But once you have these k-means clusters, which are small and tight, we can take their averages, the average representative vectors, and do hierarchical clustering on top of them. So this is what is in here. Uh, these are actually cluster numbers, but each one contains uh, 200, 300, 400, uh, 178 genes. So these are already clusters that have been brought together by the hierarchical clusters. Because in the k-means you just get 100 clusters, you don't know the relationship. But in here you can start seeing, actually this and this and this cluster, they are rather similar, so I could treat them as individual tree clusters or merge them all together. And this is uh, now a much faster way to do the clustering of the very, very large data. Uh, I'm 
and of course, behind each uh, uh, line in here is a number of genes. So in here is just example. We leave one cluster, 101 group, but we deal with the genes that we call these objects genes, but 101 uh, rows, so they are pretty much identical to your visual perception. Um, so that's what we can do. You can do uh, clustering uh, horizontally, vertically. Uh, this is output uh, from this cluster. These uh, two, you can go online, upload your data, uh, take from Excel, copy paste, uh, you can use them. It's nice when you have one data set and you work with this one data set. You do clustering, you do visualization, you do uh, whatever you need to do. But the problem is that there will be many data sets. And when we talk about uh, genetic data, there are hundreds of labs in the world that perform experiments under different conditions. They test their systems and measure the gene expression activities using the same technologies. Um, for example, Atometrics uh, uh, microchips for um, gene expression measurements, uh, gene expression um, chips. Uh, by the way, they are produced uh, by the uh, kind of similar technologies as computer chips are produced. So, using the light masks and with the light masks opening up certain positions on the chip, you would do normal chips layer by layer in specific uh, regions. In here what happens layer by layer is that they grow the DNA uh, strands, one nucleotide at a time in the right places. So if A needs to be put into the one-fourth of the uh, slots, and one fourth of the spots are open, and one A is attached. If G needs to be attached, then other mass opens up to G, and that attaches G to the DNA strand. The point in here is that now each column that you see in here actually is a large data set. So we don't have in here anymore individual data values, but what we rather try to do is is uh, trying to analyze all the data sets. There, there are thousands of data sets. In here you see maybe less than 100, but we try to analyze across every data set what happens with the similarity. So similarity is essential. We need to understand what is similar or not. You can do that easily within each data set separately, but when the data is measured under different conditions, then uh, you don't want to merge all the data together, they cannot be merged. But what we can do is we can do individual data analysis and then see what happens across every different experiment. So this visualizes the similarity from one gene to, to the most similar ones across many data sets. And you can see that in these data sets they are more similar. In there, in these data sets, they, the blue means actually that they are totally different. So sometimes they are similar, sometimes they are different. Just to illustrate, this is still every column is a large data set behind it. 
we are trying to make sense out of this data. And this is similarity uh, search. The most similar genes across every data set, and you can see that indeed somehow these uh, data sets stand out, and most of these genes in here are related to stem cells, the ones that produce other cell types in your body. Uh, biology is inspiring us a lot, not only because we need to analyze biological data, but also because we, we get the hints how the biology works, how your brain works. Where is the signal stored in your brain? What are the associations? How do you fetch the right memory slot from your brain? We don't know that uh, exactly, but uh, one type of artificial neural networks that is used for clustering is so-called self-organizing map, or by some other terminology, associative uh, memory map or associative array. We want to associate data uh, with the other data so that similar data are associated together in the same region in the memory. What we do have is uh, the concept of similarity. Data has attributes, the other data point has attributes, and you can measure the similarity. And now we want to make sure that the similar data is represented in the same location. Location is a cluster. How many clusters we want, like in the KVs, we can say upfront how many clusters we will uh, want, and we want uh, everything that is similar to that cluster to be in the same memory slot. Sounds easy, right? So now we implement that technically, and we call uh, these memory spots as representatives of the clusters, represented by the, we have used the uh, beams or metalloids, but represented by some vector. This is what should be my cluster. And then the data point, if it's similar, belongs to that cluster. If it's different, it will belong to the other cluster. So this is uh, five times seven, 35 neurons put on the grid. This is our memory. 35 uh, neurons or 35 clusters, this is our uh, representation of the artificial memory. And we need to uh, train this memory. The principle is easy, we have somewhere, we can have millions of data points, but let's make them smaller, like hundreds of thousands, so 100,000 data points. And we need to uh, see what are the 35 associated uh, well, associations or groups in the data. Um, we don't know the cluster, the true clusters, right? But we have data. We can initialize them randomly, like we did with the k's. We can just say, okay, these are the k random vectors. They will be initialized. Uh, these initialize the cluster. We can do the same. Just put random vectors in the, in the memory map, and we have data. 
So how the training of this memory map happens is that we take one entity from the data, randomly. And with this we start training this uh, thing. There are random vectors, and we can ask which of them is most similar, right? The tests for 35 uh, vectors. Okay, this one is most similar to this uh, random vector in here. But now we take a data point and say that, okay, this should be wrong in here. We need to train the map, and what we do now is we say, okay, this was so far the most similar, but probably wasn't exactly the same, right? It's somewhat similar, but not exactly the same. Let's change my memory in the way that this representative in here will be changed by the new data point, the data entry. So the data we throw in here, and by this we change this vector in here to be more similar to the new data point. So we just we have the cluster center and we have the data point. So what we do to make it more similar is we shift this cluster center towards that data point. Mathematically we just move towards that point. One vector, the other vector, uh, by a small step, and you can, you can decide how small, how long or small step this will be. By a small step, we will move towards that data point, and we have updated uh, the value. If a new data point, now I forget about that, if a new data point is here, I will move a little bit in this direction. If the new data point is in here, I will move uh, in this direction. And I keep moving. If there are many points in here, I will set a step move close to this cluster. I will, I will move to this center in here. If there is a very less 100,000 times I train the points in here, my cluster center will eventually move in the, in the center in there. Right? But what is the association in the memory? This just changes one, one vector in here. The idea is that around my red target, there are these black nodes, which are nearby cluster centers uh, in here as well. I have, we have put them in the grid, so somehow they are connected. Uh, in this space, they are 30, uh, 7 by 5 grid, but in this space, they are somewhere arbitrarily close, right? What we will do is that my neighbor on the grid, if, if this represents the grid, somehow, Now this is one, two, three, four times three grid. Um, switch on the light. If I have this uh, three by four piece of grid, then I, what I will do is I will take my neighbors in here. 
make sure that if we train heavily here, there are many points in here, I move this one in there, but I, what I will do is I will somewhat move closer with all the neighbors. If this goes 20% jump, I may decide to go only 5% jump in here. So they will, it will attract not only this one, but also the neighbor, neighborhood. This ensures that on this map, eventually there will be a value represented uh, by, by here, but the nearby cells will be somewhat similar to this value. And in here, they, they will have different vectors. And this is arbitrary, sort of arbitrary order uh, training process, you just keep training, throwing in the data, and hope that something good emerges in here. Hence, self-organizing that. Something emerges in, in there by self-organization principle. So, your uh, data could be images, and similar, somewhat similar faces may end up in the similar nearby cells, and some uh, totally different, maybe somewhere different. You can take documents and start training on this map. So the documents that have similar words, similar talk about similar topics, end up in the similar regions on the map. You can take jelly and they will emerge in similar regions. Jelly beans, uh, jelly bears, they end up in the similar region. Everything in here is yellowish, right? So nearby cells will be uh, shades of gray, blue, red, orange. Or <laughs> some, some people have too much time. For <laughs> Good for us. Um, so this guy, Theo uh, Bohman uh, from Helsinki University of Technology, now Alta University, well, he's emeritus. He's uh, rather old now, around 80, I guess. So he developed these self-organizing maps, uh, sometimes called associative array, sometimes called Bohonen map, because of the name. Uh, so technically, we have the vectors that are represented by the number of attributes. We have the input vector with the number of attributes. We have the weights, so this is like it can be weighted. You can have this gray talk in here. You can add different weights to the to the attributes. You will, you will have weighted some, and this is the most similar uh, place. And then you change the neighborhood to be similar. So it organizes more than just a single cluster center. It organizes also the neighborhood. These are examples of uh, countries. The data you can take, well, this is old, the old data from 1992 on economic uh, development indices, economic uh, uh, attributes of the country. So each country is represented by, I don't know, GDP uh, per capita, the net growth, or whatever the growth values, you know, the monetary values, basically. And then you start training, and you will get uh, the lists of Countries like Netherlands that has Colombia and Peru together, or uh, Kenya, Botswana next to each other, Zimbabwe, or Uruguay, Ar Argentina, Hungary, Poland, and Portugal. 
Denmark, Great Britain, Norway, Canada, States, Israel. Uh, so you can develop sort of like a map where you have similar countries ending up uh, close together. And then you can uh, perhaps try to identify what are the uh, different regions between how, how similar the neighborhood vectors are, uh, labeled by different colors, and, and this is what the colors would look like on the real map. So, uh, just example of self-harmless map uh, introduction. Uh, you can make very easy simulations. So, so from the viewers, you can play the colors, say that these are the vectors representing different colors, and then you start organizing, and similar colors should end up in the same locations. Uh, okay. The distance is in here, Euclidean distance is the most simplest to think, and Euclidean distance will also have, allow us to well, basically give you the vectors so that you have vector endpoints and you move one towards the other. The neighborhood, you can, if this is the winner, then the further away you go, you can decrease the learning rate linearly, or you can use uh, some more Gaussian looking. So this is the winner, you train that the most. But when you are two hops away, you do much smaller steps. So you can decide what is the winner and how large a neighborhood you will train. <coughs> From one PowerPoint to the other, I have lost all the symbols. Um, this is an example of different animals. Sorry. Animals are on the, on the columns, and the different properties are in here. Small, medium, or large size, has two legs, four legs, hair or not, hooves, uh, feathers or not. Do they hunt? Do they run? Do they fly or swim? So binary vectors, right? And then you keep training uh, uh, these different uh, vectors the different animals with the, represented by the vector, binary vector, you train and then you get birds separated from, from carnivores and herbivores. The meat-eating and plant-eating species. For documents, this was uh, done in, I think in the mid-90s or so, when the online communications, online discussions were in the, in the uh, news uh, feeds, so taking the news feeds, oh sorry, in here, oh it's already said web article. On the, on the scientific uh, data, you, could, you can take text and uh, train the self organizing map and then highlight which words were dominant in certain uh, documents. So if many documents end up in here, then what, which words were dominant in there? PDP type of computer, uh, back propagation, uh, mining, etc. Then you can zoom into the mining and you see the other terms, annealing, annealing, saturation, exploration, uh, missing data. So you can get the documents organized by some sort of document similarity, document content similarity, by just taking into account all the words in the document. Okay, so 
in here abstractly you can see that the number of uh, neurons is is probably large. You don't see that, but the idea is that you, we have high-dimensional spaces, world uh, vectors, and we try to put them on two dimensions, so that the documents that in high-dimensional space are similar are close nearby on the two-dimensional space. This is done by a self-organized map, the principle I discussed. But you can also use some dimensionality reduction techniques that try to preserve original distances in two dimensions. You can imagine that you can try, you cannot succeed 100% always, but the, where you can bring together the similar objects, then two dimensional spaces can, can, you can visualize them more easily. Okay, uh, we were used to say that object is represented by a vector, but in theory, you can, when you start moving to the objects that are represented by relationships to, uh, to the other objects, the graphs, then you can start doing the clustering in the graphs, trying to identify uh, are there some dense groups of people related to each other or Twitter followers, sort of different clusters of different groups in the social networks, or is this a social network? Why yes or why not? Could be. Of course it could be. It could be men and women talking to each other or, or whatever uh, kind of relationship. Is this a social network? What do you know about social networks? You have some common knowledge about social networks. But what is it? People friend each other. Yes, that is a relationship. That is the line. These two are friends. Uh, there are probably, I don't know, one and a half, two billion uh, users of uh, Facebook now. One now is it a big graph? Or? It is a big graph. It is two billion entities in there. It is a big graph. We know how to deal with the big graphs as well, but, but what are the properties of the network? Not each other one. You, I don't have all the Facebook uh, connected to Yeah, me. but like it would go randomly, but there you go like linearly, like one dot goes next and then next and then next and then there is some branch. But if, if I give you the arbitrary person, Jose Martinez uh, Cumbuela, uh, from there, wherever, right? He could be living in, uh, in Mexico, Spain, or China. How many links to that person from you? Yes. 
Yes, you know. You should know. You mean like links? Or like yes. How many people between yes. and him? Like, uh, if you do have people, uh, how many links? Uh, five to six. There was some reasons that did six links at the very you can reach any person. The social networks, it's a smaller amount of links than the social one that's in real life. So, so there was a famous uh, study which said this six degrees of separation. Two garbage rails, and that was done in the times of the letter mail, snail mail. You may not even remember the snail mail. But they tested how far, how many passes of the snail mail to get to the right person. And that was six on average. On average, uh, you, you can measure the diameter of the graph by what is the longest possible shortest path. If you are asking about the shortest path between the two, but you can ask what is the longest shortest path, and that is the diameter. If average is six, then it does not mean that the longest path would be six exactly. Right? Some are shorter, some are longer. On average, it's six. But even on the Skype network, when we looked, at the longest diameters were around 30. The longest. Um, and that's a hell of a lot of calculations because then you need to do many, many pairs of decimal times. But on average, uh, it would be small. And, and in here, you can see that on average, this is not so small, actually. So this is protein interaction, a network, some, some type of thing. It's not really a very social network when, when. Okay, also in the social networks, you have. Uh, Many nodes that have only one connection. Um, in Skype, you can have many nodes that have no connections. Maybe they do only Skype out call. But, but in these uh, clusters, the similarity is sort of measured by the link present or not. And then the clusters would be a dense regions that have many links between them. Um, so, but for the graphs, we have. Um, Slightly other means to do the uh, clustering. Or we could do most of them uh, ask whether the two whether the two persons have high overlap in their targets, in the friendship graph. You and you have probably, I don't know, 15 friends in common on Facebook. Even if you are not linked to each other. Um, and of course visualization comes in, in play. We are also dealing with the data of medical data, where the goal is to somehow analyze, well, this is from the from Nature Genetics Review, the goal is to find, if we can find the similar groups of people by their diseases, uh, treatments, uh, whatever is happening to them in, in life, uh, by uh, diagnosis, the, the, the diseases, the medications that they get, the laboratory values, uh, demographic information, age, gender, uh, region uh, where they live, the type of job that they do, then you can imagine that there are lots and lots of missing data in this. There is no comprehensive uh, data uh, available. But somehow trying to find the, the, the groups of patients that are similar uh, by different clustering means, for example, clustering of uh, of uh, hierarchical clustering, we can start 
analyzing this data and look how many diseases are shared or not shared. Again, you can see these two by two matrices. So um, the techniques that you already master um, can start having applications in these large-scale data analysis. So we went through hierarchical clustering, k-means, self-organization maps. You can do more uh, combinations. You can com combine self-organization maps and uh, tree-type clustering. These SOTA trees are something that take the data to self-organization map into small number of regions and then do the hierarchical tree dividing smaller and smaller. So you can build the trees starting top down or bottom up. Fuzzy membership, expectation maximization, I just said that uh, you can, you, your points could belong to uh, several different clusters. In the graph theory, we can start applying where are the clicks, where are the strongly connected components, where are the near clicks, everybody connected to everybody, but not precisely. You can apply, once you have defined the similarity measure, then I think I, uh, I think what is very useful for you is instead of just immediately doing clustering, you can do that search. Okay, this is the similarity. Give me the most similar ones. So you can actually work with the data with one example and give me everybody similar. One patient like you, who are patients like me, I don't need to do clustering to find other individuals like you. You can just see what are the, by the distance measure, who are the most similar, right? So when you explore data, then you don't need to always do clustering. You, you may end up doing similarity search. And then we will move on to this multidimensional scaling principle component analysis I, I, I briefly mentioned. So there are a number of number of different uh, techniques. Principle component analysis. How many of you know how does it work? What is it? You have taken statistics class, right? No, Sorry? Machine learning. Oh, machine learning, of course. So this is a standard uh, statistical uh, method of dimensionality reduction. In pure visualize, just in two dimensions, but you, your data is normally in higher dimensions. So when you look at the uh, when you look at the point of cloud, uh, or point cloud in here, of course you would say that you know, let's uh, we can put regression line here, whatever. But that is not the point. We want to take higher dimensional space and need to want to show it in, in lower dimensions or look at what is the how do I convert this data into a single dimension? I have these uh, data points. What if I wanted to just have single dimension and order them by that dimension? Which dimension would that be? It's not probably X or just Y. You can take the point cloud and ask in which direction this is the most spread out. If you have high dimensional space, you can, you can ask, uh, you go out to the, to the, in the night and you see that the stars and see the, the, the Milky Way and, and ask which way this is oriented. And then you say that the, the main axis is the way how it's most spread out. And this is the first principal component. So we, in, in this picture we can sort of do the 
the change the coordinates to the first, say that the first coordinate x will be in the future this one axis. And my y, the next y will be orthogonal to the selected new first axis. And this will generalize to higher dimensions. So you can have 17 dimensional space and say that, okay, let's look in 17 dimensions, arbitrary uh, shapes, in which way my data is spread out. And say that this is my first axis in here. And then orthogonal to that, you have still probably sort of 16 dimensional space. What would be the other dimension? That is my second dimension. So you start from 17 dimensional space, but you can plot the first and the second principal component. And this is kind of dimensionality reduction, first and second component uh, identified. You're, we looked at this data that is actually one, two, three, four, something like seven, eight, about nine dimensional space. If you ask what are the two dimensional, two dimensions, most important dimensions, then this is what principal component analysis will give you. The first and the second component. And this one adds the third component, the three-dimensional variable. But you can see immediately here that if you take this artificially generated data and did the principal component analysis, this is what you would get. The color is just by the original color. So each cluster has been generated randomly. We know exactly what the cluster color was. So the colors are in here. But without the color, you would already see uh, the clusters. If there are clusters in the data, you would observe them visually. So it's sort of like visualization technique where you can uh, take the high dimension data and look at it in two dimensions. And if there are groups, then you will observe them by eye. You may be short of data, but data is all around you. So the, the same uh, picture that uh, I showed you last time, well, so not, not the same, but just the picture that I showed you last time, this is the number of rows, the number of colors of, of different uh, color bias, uh, RGB uh, vectors of 1,000 points. 3,000 dimensional space of rows. If we mix the rows and columns, this is the data. Right? But now we have all the original rows are there, just in arbitrary order. All the original columns are there, just in arbitrary order. We never say that when we have 100 dimensional space x1, x2, x3, that there is some need to keep them in that order. You can reorder the vectors, right? And your Euclidean distance will remain the same. Your correlation will remain the same. Most of the distance measures will remain the same. So this, this could be the data now, the data matrix. And of course, you don't have a clue what, is this, what does this data represent. Right? If you try to do clustering, you would probably see that, oh, there are some lots of these blue lines. And the blue lines should be together, and you will start getting some reasoning out of this data. Right? But 
principal component analysis asks what are the dimensions by which this, is, this data is spread out. Can anyone guess what the principal component analysis will look like for this data? Try to try to try to think. Principal component analysis tries to spread out on which way does this this is sort of like maybe from blue to red to green. What are the dimensions of this data? What are the properties? Um, Data looks like this, and this is quite this is quite uh, interesting, but but also a little bit natural. So if you if you take two point two rows, each point now in here is one of the rows in the original image. From one pixel row to the next, they are probably very very similar. So the two points in this mapping should be close to each other. So the two points, two rows in here, probably are just next to each other. And then you will have the path through the rows. Visually, you can immediately see these paths somehow that if you, if you will start going by this path, you would probably get pretty much a large part of this image sorted out directly. What the heck is it? Each, big, each uh, original row is a point in here, but not represented by this high-dimensional 3,000-dimensional space, but just represented in two dimensions. What are these C components? Sorry? This C what, what is it? Principal component. This is the first principal component. And if... I did not do this uh, now, but probably this could be something that it, it might be something that uh, blue points are there, and I don't know, oh, this bluish rows will be there, and maybe the red ones will be in here, or green ones. So every point is a, is, is a row. If you could actually label them, you, can, you could try to observe what is the axis, what does the axis mean? Uh, Actually, this is a very good uh, question because we have tried to also, uh, in the biological data analysis, we have tried to under understand what the axis means. Because we have some information about gene background, genetic background, what the gene might do. Yeah. Our data would be genes as objects, and here are our pixel row as objects. And then we could ask, what is most common features for this set of points? And, and then you could sort of say that, oh, these in here have this row, that have that row. But that is something that you can actually uh, put back on this image. Uh, the first axis and the second. Uh, this is the first, but not the second, but now third uh, principal component. There will be, you can ask how, how many, Originally, you have 17 dimensional space. You can't present, it's not that only two dimensions are important, right? 
third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, well, maybe the fifteenth also has a little bit of variation remaining. So the, the first axis remains the same. The same on the x, you have exactly the same points, but now spread out slightly differently in the third dimension. So if you would, I don't have the three dimension version, but in here, if, if first and second and third axis cross, then probably on this second axis they are different. So probably this is sort of like they are far from each other. This is projection to first and third axis. But probably when they cross, uh, then they are separate. So to, to achieve this, uh, uh, we did just, you can make any image, convert that to RGB uh, values, have the vector, uh, uh, import that vector in R, and do the principal component analysis. This is exactly two, three lines in R. Leave data in, do principal component analysis, and visualize. Uh, you could do more by starting to ask what are these different pixels, what would they look like, so the, that, that's kind of extra work, extra. The second and third dimension are like in here. But indeed I did not, I, don't, I do not have the, the three dimension version of this one, two, three uh, uh, first principal component. Okay, now you have trained to analyze images, you, if you were given now time to make the computer program, you would pretty much figure out what the heck is on the image. You could do that within two hours, write the program, and recover pretty much what is on the image. I, I don't keep you waiting, so this is the image. This it is, it is a lot of geometric, uh, uh, just lots of these whites. You, you see some white stripes uh, back and forth. So that was a very geometric uh, image. There is some watermark in here, so their rows are not exactly the same. They are slightly different by some value. So it's, it's uh, geometric, but but not exactly. What would the principal component analysis look like for this image? We have probably a lot of points clustered. So, a lot of rows. So, there will be many rows that are nearly identical, and they should be together. Now we don't have the same continuum of the points. It, it wasn't a artificial uh, natural image, right? Now we have the clusters of points. Maybe this large cluster is this one. I have not checked. 
but you can easily do that. Probably, probably it's, it's useful. Uh, first and second, uh, what is the next one? The next one is first and third, still clustering. So you could, if you would look at this in three-dimensional space, you would probably observe this good, nice clustering as we showed in the hierarchical clustering versus PCA. This data is easily clusterizable, or clusterable. The second and third. So, whichever two, well, first, second, third, it maintains the, 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 this clustering um, behavior. So, you could take high dimensional data like this. This is, I don't know, 2,000 pixels times 2,000 rows. This is 6,000 dimensions for 2,000 objects, RGB, large data. Through the physical component analysis, you could convert that to 2,000 point or rows represented by three values. And do the clustering in three-dimensional space, which probably works pretty nice. And then you have pretty, uh, almost the same clustering gap as if you did for the entire data. And much faster. Instead of 6,000 dimensional vectors, you only have three-dimensional vectors. You say your, data, your program will be about 2,000 times faster after you have converted VCA. VCA is not, uh, uh, in this case, actually, VCA works uh, fast. This is not uh, something that you have to uh, wait for long. What is on this picture? No, no way to tell. But if the principal component analysis looks like this, First and second, first and third. Any feeling, any interpretation? Like maybe one, two, three, four extremes, some shapes going between them, some cut points. This is the first and third, one, two, three, four, some, some loops. Yes, there are some, probably there are some continuous spaces, but then uh, the second and third, okay, now it's more stretched out. It's not exactly so easy to, to see the one, two, three, four, where they are. But you can you can see that you can you might be able to reconstruct large parts of the uh, data by just following the shortest path. So traveling salesman problem that will calculate the shortest path uh, through the data through the data in here pretty much will recover the image for you because shortest path probably follows uh, pretty well these uh, continuous stretches. How many of you have written traveling salesman problem solvers? One? 
You know what the challenge is or problem is, optimization problem. The shortest path through the city. If, if each point is a city, then what is the shortest path through, through all, of the, all of the city? And that will pretty much recover the reconstructivity. So this image is this. But there is a lot of regularity, sort of like, if, it, if you would just do the chessboard, then this row and this row are nearly identical. Right? Well, they are, if you take perfect, then there are two types of rows. The black-white, white-blue, white-black uh, rows. Two types. Two types of rows, two types of columns. You would have just four types of, well, you would have a large white-black, uh, black-white square. If you, if you would do the cluster. But this one is more complex, you have all the pieces, the photo, so this is uh, what it looks like for this case. Uh, okay, so this is the CSV read table, read the values, skip whatever you need to skip. PCA, principal component analysis, you get the scores, and you plot you the principal component uh, data on the first and second axis, um, X and Y, in R. So all that I showed is just by these uh, few commands. Uh, this was a text version of the image, actually. So the, the textual representation of our RGB uh, vectors. Okay, so uh, uh, we have been working on this uh, clustering in different uh, projects. Uh, we did uh, now cover the RGB clustering. Um, simple uh, data analysis using the RGB clustering. But if you look at this data, you can see the, the high values, low values, or, or sort of like the way appearing and disappearing. Uh, it's natural to look sometimes data at, uh, as a line graph. So heat map is not always the best way to look at the data. You can look at the line graph. What is done in here is you can see the, the waves that start from the uh, from, uh, first coordinate, then stay on for x, but first two values, three values are high, then disappear. Uh, four, four values are high. This is embryo of the mouse after fertilization, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, tenth day. So basically what happens after fertilization of the egg, the uh, cells start to divide to two, to four, to eight, 16, make a sort of like ball, and then starts developing where, where the heck will be the head, where will be the tail, where, where is the outside, where is the inside of the cell. So the body starts to appear. The mouse starts to develop. Uh, I don't know how long the mice are pregnant, couple of weeks maybe. So then you have the full grown mouse. So this is over over more than a week. So the genes that are active that are switched on on the second day, and they are active only for two days and then disappear. They're like tiny switches. Now I need to do this, and later I don't need that. So these are just kind of clustering into different types of clusters, but visually just doing sort of like, let's make one shape. Let's, this is a very, this is the shape. So I want to find out that the genes that are active on that are activated on the third day, 
and they will keep active for three days in a row and then switch off. So this is a 10 rate vector. I just make a query uh, by the shape similarity, as if that would be the data. And then organize. You can make a template query uh, for shopping clients. Clients uh, shopping in the first on the Mondays. You can make a template. Occasionally they shop in other days, but predominantly they shop on Mondays. Or on certain months of the day, uh, whatever. You can make a template and just make words. So this is for uh, genetic data, and you can start immediately, immediately easier to, to interpret oh, what are these 122 Gs that follow this pattern? What do they do? Um, or at the same time, 31 genes are switched, knocked out. They are active otherwise, but they are knocked out. 31 genes are knocked out, and 122 are, are activated so opposite direction. You need to silence something to get your signals through. Right? So this is a biological process, what happens in the uh, mouse development. Pretty much the same that happened in the first days of your development. Pretty much we are identical animals. So, uh, clustering data analysis can give us a lot of uh, good insights into the, into the data and into the phenomena behind the data. It's not just numeric, any arbitrary numeric uh, data or arbitrary data. We try to solve the real world problems. Okay. Uh, but we are dealing with the high-dimensional data. I showed you the principal component analysis. There could be some other dimensionality reduction techniques. The problem is when you have more and more dimensions. Let's measure this one, have another dimension. Let's measure that one, have another dimension. Let's measure this one, another dimension. What is the curse in there is that Ultimately, every two objects will be very far from each other. Because the new dimension may bring them apart. Right? The new dimension may bring them apart. You have thousands of dimensions, they can be arbitrarily far from each other. And then the concept of similarity will become uh, much more tricky. And also the, the clustering will not be so easily detectable because uh, there are no clusters. Just stars that are far, very far, far from each other. Very hard to detect the clusters. So, to overcome this, we need to reduce the dimensionality. Uh, principal component analysis is one. There, there are some others that try to think of the first, second dimensions. But you can think of these projections. Let's have the large data, but then look at from some sort of some angles and only through the projection. So this is the three-dimensional data, but depending on which axis you look at, dimension A and uh, this is A and A, A B here, A B C. This should be C, I guess, but those those have to be A and A. But looking at different dimensions, you can do the densities of different data. You can observe there might be some clustering in here. This is now just a density plot or histogram. 
you could do kernel density estimation in the, this dimension. So in this dimension, we can clearly see the two separate groups. That separates the two groups and then maybe some other dimension in here will separate that agrees from the red. So this separates the bluish ones from this group of this dimension represents separates the other. So from the different angles you can look at the data to the projections and on each projection you can attempt uh, the density estimations of clustering. Which clustering method that I discussed so far would reveal anything on this thing? How many clusters are in on this thing? How many clusters are in this thing? Anybody sees more? Yes? Is this, can you really agree on this data? No. no? Why not? How many do you see? Yeah. Sorry? Together. You can do it like. How many do you, see? How many do you see? really see? Together. There are six, but you can. There is six. There, comp there is six. You said six. There is six. But you can Do just uh, still uh, define what your uh, metric is when you define a cluster. Okay, now I win. Now I win. I said mathematically, but you can do anything. Yeah. But that, if that would be the first slide on the, I should, uh, I would have said, how many clusters there is? Forget everything we, we learned so far. How many clusters there is? Six. There is a ground truth for us. There is six. But tell me which clustering method would reveal, reveal the six now of the ones that we discussed. None of the methods would identify you the six clusters. Yet we know that there are six clusters. So our intuition is not yet in the algorithms that we put on table so far. The problem are like like in here. The points are very similar, but they, they probably are from the different clusters. Right? Maybe it's hard to detect exact order, but K means would distribute the space, maybe make a, a cluster in here, there, there. Not perfect. So what we need to follow in here is arbitrary of the shape, what is the dense region? Density-based clustering. So let's try to identify the dense regions and follow these uh, dense regions. Try to figure out where the borders are. What is the density? Yeah, what is the density? What is mathematics? What is density? The distance between the points. Uh, distance and uh, areas are yeah. like points of closure. Yeah, dense, well, dense areas is, is an area that has many points. Within this area, I have many points. I can define the area as saying, okay, let's look at one point and let's look at it. It's really nearby a circle. That defines my area. I can define larger circle or smaller. I can define what is my area. 
and how many points will be will I call dense? And then I have dense and spark. So let's make the density. We, we define density for every point as little radius. And how many number of points within the specific radius, the same area or, or, or surface or, or, or region in the space, that is my density. Now, I, based on this density, I would say that for if the point has dense neighborhood, then I call this a, as a core point. Uh, if, if it's sparse, then it's a noise, it's sparse area, I would call this a cluster. And some points can have, uh, will be on the border in the sense that the point itself seems to be in the sparse space, but in its neighborhood, I have somebody that is already a dense neighborhood in the dense neighborhood. I am on in the sparse neighborhood, but one of my friends is in the dense neighborhood. So just defining parameters, the radius, and the radius defines the space, and then we can just count how many in that uh, neighborhood. So for this one, there may be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If I set the threshold four, then the seven points are dense. This one has two neighbors, or three points in this space, sparse. Not the, not the above four. This one has one, two, three, four, well, four or three neighbors, so this point is not dense, but the, this one is dense. So uh, how many neighbors is it a, a core of the cluster uh, noise or order. For this you can calculate for every point that these red ones are in the dense neighborhood and then when you start walking around this this will define your cluster. So this will be noise and this will be the, the border points. So basically you, you set the two parameters, the radius and what is the minimum threshold and you calculate for every point whether it's a core or not, and then start from some core, start looking at the neighborhood. If it's still the, the same in the neighborhood, core is in the same cluster, same cluster, same cluster, same cluster, we keep expanding the cluster, whichever the shape is. The best points are the green ones, the red ones are the noise, and the blue ones are the border faces. And now you can start walking basically pretty much from anywhere, start getting uh, neighborhood by neighborhood, defining the points. So for this data, this algorithm will identify one, two, three, four, five, six clusters. Of course, nicely picked example works nice, right? But proves the method kind of works. Uh, DB scan. Uh, Density-based scanning of the points, and then following the, the borders. So this defines uh, the clusters of arbitrary shapes as long as they are dense. So you can handle clusters of different shapes and sizes, and the noise. If there is not too much noise, it, it will not be distorted. Of course, this is nicely selected case. We can find counterexamples that it does not work. Does not work, 
nicely when we have clusters of variable densities. We can make, make a, a, a epsilon radius 9.75, minimum number of points 4, and you get 1, 2, at least maybe noise points, or is it the third cluster? All of, the, all of these will be in one cluster. One, two, three clusters, perhaps, or, or maybe maybe these are all noise. Mean points, no, four, but radius, 9 9.9.2, 9.75, 9.92. Uh, I never uh, checked that so carefully. This is larger radius, the same number of points. It should be the other way around, or not. The small change in the parameter gives us totally different clusters results. Identify one, two, three dense clusters, more dense clusters, and all the other is noise. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that this uh, that the epsilon has been made larger. It should have been made smaller. Uh, require four in the smaller neighborhood with small dense or increase the number of points. The point is that small number of uh, small change in the parameters would potentially give us totally different outputs. <coughs> And, uh, but there are some properties in this data that are variable densities in different regions. And uh, scan does not work on these, but, but the variance of the newer versions, so you can come up with ideas where, where the, these shortcomings have been overcome so that you can vary the density for different regions and then, uh, then get the, uh, these cases solved. However, if you look carefully at whatever the algorithm is, there is a lot of querying of the neighborhood. For every point you find, you need to find everything that is close to that. So the neighborhood queries in high dimensional space are extremely important. If you may stop it, you have to, for every case, you need to look at all the data. You need multidimensional data indexes that allow you to do the neighborhood queries fast. It's not a single dimension that you can index in the database. You have multi-dimensional data, and you need to be able to index fast across multiple dimensions. For the two, three, small number of dimensional spaces, you can have the k-dimensional trees, kd trees. Uh, you can move to r trees. Uh, uh, the different the variance of multi-dimensional uh, tree indexes, which we covered with the algorithms. But you can always plot how many points there is, uh, points ordered according to distance to the fourth nearest neighbor. So this one, the distance to fourth, so there are many points, the distance is still small to the fourth point. So you can see that these are actually the dense neighborhood of points, and suddenly my fourth point is already far from me, 45 distance. And here, four distance. So we can look at the, the uh, plot the distances and make, make the cutoffs. Like uh, look at the fourth or the fifth point, what is the distance? And based on this, you can do more informed cutoff that uh, uh, what distance, what is the radius, what distance I look at, and how many points are required. 
And then there are libraries that uh, try to achieve uh, uh, knowledge discovery applications supported by indexed structures. So the multidimensional indexes are important. So once you have the multidimensional indexes sorted, you can make queries what is nearby, then you can start to make these different clustering methods that are relying on this uh, concept of, this, of, the, of the nearby, what are the close elements in the high dimensional space. Okay, so we have covered pretty much clustering by similarity, various types of data, outlier detection, what is not in the cluster, it's outlier. Um, don't, don't get me wrong, this is intermediate summary, there, there are more uh, methods. So I will just try to see where, where do I, oh, we have looked at some of the goals of the cluster. We would like to have it fast, give the noise, high dimensions, maybe have, we have extra constraints, how do we interpret and use the clusters? You don't want to give the end user, oh, just delete these 10 attributes and your, my, my clustering algorithm will work. The end user doesn't know anything about this parameter. So minimum expert knowledge on parameters would be needed. So you give him the data, oh, just put the radius at the number of points. What should I put there? I just go with the defaults. Right? How often do you change the parameters? If you use any, 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 any kind of tool. You just go with the defaults. So the, the point is that we would somehow need to understand what is a good clustering and how do we recognize a good clustering uh, once we see. Well, this is clearly data that can be clustered well. What we can now do is look at all the pairwise distances and plot the pairwise distances on, like in a, if, you would, if you would do hierarchical clustering, you would get ordering and then you get the pairwise distances. These data points, uh, well, this is x and x and y, the same points versus points. My first point, the, well, basically the algorithm is point to itself, it's, uh, they are identical. Clearly you can see that uh, indeed there is a cluster that is highly similar to each other and almost not to anything else. You can see that the clusters, three clusters identified are clearly separate. But you don't have always uh, that good uh, clustering opportunities. And maybe your, your clustering will be slightly different. Now it's much more, um, much harder to see whether this, this clustering is good or not. Yes, you can still see some, some boxes, maybe it's kind of, but you cannot be 100% sure. Give me scanning here. K means identify different clusters. One, two, three. Okay, which one? This one or this one will be better. K means I split it here and blue, green, and red. TV scan has, has one, two, and the rest. On this data, TV scan would look like this. So there were six clusters, one, kind of six clusters, 
but there is there there not there will be some checkerboards in here. It, it's not so easy uh, to detect how similar or different they are. Within the well, within this pinkish cluster, there will be similarities to the to the blue cluster uh, more than within the uh, pink to itself. So validating what clustering will will is the is the output uh, valid good clustering or not is actually can be hard. And even asking how, how on earth would we do that? How do we validate? Or what are the methods? Yeah, we said that within the cluster distances should be similar. If the cluster is far, then it's easily clusterable, and we could observe that. But sometimes we ask to cluster data that does not have clusters, yet we get clusters. If you do the same random process again, you may end up with different clusters. You can start comparing the clusters. How often my clusters stay together, and when do they change? When are they totally different? So we can also start validating by a randomization experiment. Do I get the, over and over again? Do I get the same clusters? Are, are the clusters stable? I take a different subsample. Are the clusters similar? Then I sort of discussed about uh, graphs. Well, this is one of the ugly graphs. Uh, this layout is on the circle and the connections in there. You don't see anything. It could be a social network. Um, there is no good layout in here, just uh, a very artistic layout. But clustering would give us the different shapes and sizes of the subclusters in this data. In this data, we could identify a split into smaller clusters, and the different coloring here means uh, what type of evidence there is that there is a link between these two proteins or between these two types of people in the social network potentially. Although in the social network analysis and protein interactions, there will be slightly different methods that we need to use. How do we get from this to this? How do we identify this cluster in the graph? Um, we try to find the, the, the modules or sort of the locations that are lots of uh, connections between the graphs. So this is a dense uh, cluster. And of course, we could uh, still ask, okay, once I have the cluster, is there evidence that they belong in the same cluster? Then we can do some secondary evidence that's good, but how do we get into that state? And this is where we uh, uh, finish with this example. It's how many of you know how page rank works? Does anybody know how page rank works? And the rest of you, you don't, what is page rank? You don't know. Google's. Google PageRank. The, one of the most uh, famous algorithms uh, by now. That's how the, the Google started. They, they came up with something that allowed us them to do better web search. Web search is finally documents that have that work. And now you have to present the, word, the, the documents to the user. If there are so many documents that have that word. Which one should I show you first? 
I did, if you don't find it on the Google first page, then you don't put it in the second, right? You do some other test now. You have, Google has to bring out 10 documents out of the millions. So, um, original idea, they have now had to tune it in many different ways uh, because people start uh, uh, spamming the link spam, etc. But the original idea was that you probably were trying to identify what is the most important page at that person. And in that case, the question whether the document has a word or whether the document is important are separate questions. So Google solved it originally that, oh, I know all these documents have the word, but let's, I will show you them by the order of importance of the document. How do you know which pages are important in the web? You just start crawling, you get hundreds of uh, thousands of new pages created every hour. Which one is important? Well, originally it wasn't so fast pace, but nevertheless, no, there is a concept of the, the random walk. If you will start walking randomly the links, and go to your page, you have probably 10 links out, so I just pick randomly one of the 10 randomly. I keep random walk, doing random walk. Then the important pages are there that I, over the time, again, and again, and again, and again, I will get back to the same page. The important, page, important pages are those where the random clicking would take us off. Uh, you end up in a page that does not have links, no problem, you randomly reappear anywhere in the web. And occasionally, well, you have pages, nobody has ever pointed to that page. How can I get to that random wall? I occasionally just reappear in any page. So sometimes I discover pages that have no links pointing to that. So you solve the, the, the dead end problem and the appearing pages, and this is, by the way, how the, how the web looks like, web looks like a uh, giant uh, bow tie. President Dilmas has wearing the bow tie. This is how web look like, looks like. The pages that point in and you follow the links, you end up in the core. In the core you can make circles from anywhere and then you have to go out to the dead end from where the, there is just way out. There is no way coming back anymore. You cross this border, you are out. So this is how web looks, looks like. But random walk tells us which pages are most important. And then you can do that numerically, solve that matrix algebra, you, you just do it um, very fast, calculate it, approximate it, but that is, that is a page line. Markov chain clustering Marco chain Monte Carlo simulation clustering does also kind of random walk. Um, start walking in here, but the case is that when you have a dense click, then you will you will walk between that click often. So you start random walk, and when you have followed some links, you make these links more important. The, uh, the links that you did not follow so frequently, you make them less important. So over the time, gradually, you increase the importance of frequent links and decrease the importance of infrequent links, and you get the separation of the data 
our regional graph into the final cluster, step by step. I randomly walk. I keep it here. Oh, this one I very frequently. I did not use that in the run, so I just disappeared, uh, cut the link in here. So you can write a small script that starts randomly walking, or you could take the class of matrix algebra and say that I can do the same with three lines of code. Matrix representation of the uh, links multiplied with itself. So where, I, where can I get with one hop links matrix times matrix, where do I get? I get a new updated matrix, matrix two. I do some magic in, in, inflation. I, I sort of like apply some parameters on these links, and I observe whether the, the two matrices have remained almost the same or are different. I do as long as it changes, but the two matrices are exactly the same, I stop, I have found my clusters in here. But basically it's like a randomable procedure that is just implemented in the, in the matrix uh, multiplication um, into the random box from any point to the other point, what are the frequencies that you follow? So, uh, we can stop it here. Today we went through many different ideas how, how you can approach clustering. Okay. Thank you.